0: Thank you, worship team. And we are thankful for all of you who are mothers here today, uh, but I hope you caught what Tinsley said in the wire. We are thankful for those of you who are biological mothers. We are thankful for those of you who are adoptive mothers. We are thankful for those of you who are spiritual mothers. Some of you may, in God's providence, have been given the blessing of being able to be biological mothers, or someday may be. Some of you may have been given the blessing by God of being adoptive mothers. All of you, all of you women have been given by God the privilege, if you know Him through Jesus Christ, of being spiritual mothers. What is a spiritual mother? A spiritual mother is that vision that's cast by Titus chapter 2. It is a woman coming alongside a younger woman. Younger may be in age and life experience, younger may be in spiritual maturity and encouraging her and loving her and showing her what it is to follow Jesus Christ. And there is not a woman here today who knows Jesus Christ who cannot turn and find someone who can become in some sense a spiritual daughter. So if you're here this morning and you have children biologically, you have children by adoption, I pray that today God's blessing shines upon you through the appreciation of your family. But if you are here today and in God's providence that doesn't describe you, I I pray today that you would be encouraged by this vision that God allows you in many ways to impact His church and His world beyond what many, many biological and adoptive mothers are capable of doing. Own that vision of Titus 2. Be a spiritual mother whether or not you are a biological and adoptive mother well, it's not a Mother's Day sermon today. That was the mini Mother's Day sermon. Uh, my sermon this morning uh, is is certainly relevant to mothers and their sons and daughters, but it's also relevant as well to fathers and children. It's relevant to brothers and sisters. It's relevant to friends. It's, it's relevant to employers and employees. It's relevant to brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And the topic of the sermon this morning is forgiveness. This sermon is the first message in a series that I'll be working on periodically through the summer, kind of around other things that we have planned for the summer. And it comes under the goal, the goal that we have in this transition team process of… of creating or growing a culture of peacemaking. I… I don't know if you really understand that term peacemaking and what that means to you when I hear the word peacemaking. I think of a bridge. And I love this picture coming up on the screen of this beautiful bridge. And when I think about that, I think about the reality of your and my relationships. As we… as we engage in the… the cycles, the circles of relationships that we have, and if we're married in our marriages, in our families, in our extended families, in our friendships, in our workplaces, in the body of Christ, it's our common experience that things happen, that things happen, and, and they separate us in our relationships. Our relationships can be separated by ravines of misunderstanding, by gorges of suspicion, by chasms of offense, by, by canyons of conflict. And with that reality, Jesus calls us. He calls you and me individually as followers of Him, but He calls us collectively as a body of Christ to be peacemakers to build bridges across these distances, to build these bridges through the kinds of confession and repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation that He models to us, that He teaches us and that He calls us to. So today I want to begin with really what I believe biblically is the heart of peacemaking, which is forgiveness. And I got to tell you, right at the outset, I am no expert on forgiveness. I come to you this morning as a beggar telling other beggars where to find food. I struggle with forgiveness in relational hurts as much as anybody here. I struggle with forgiveness, especially in situations like Frank Pomeroy faced last November in Sutherland Springs, Texas. Watch this. The
1: message came in six terrible words, shooting at church, a lot dead. I texted back, uh, is that a joke? And a few minutes later, I got no. Pastor Frank Pomeroy was away from his First Baptist Church of Sutherland Springs on that tragic Sunday, returning home to help authorities identify the 26 dead, church members, friends, his 14-year-old daughter, Annabelle. It hurts that I've lost Annabelle, but I also know that he has a plan that I need to continue to carry out, and that's what I do. In a town of just 600, everyone feels the loss. We knew those people. Pomeroy leans on Pastor Paul Buford for support. Families that that are in our church had family members over there. The sanctuary is now a memorial. Chairs for each of the victims where they fell. It's surreal in the aspect that it's not the church it w- was to me before. However, it's still God's house. Let me first of all say. It's in his faith, that Pomeroy that has also found forgiveness for the gunmen and a reason to celebrate Thanksgiving. It is hard to cope right now. But, <clears throat> sorry but I know Annabelle would want the holidays to proceed. In overwhelming grief, (laughs) a community grateful for their faith. Miguel Almaguer, NBC News, Sutherland Springs, Texas.
0: Did you hear that quote? That in his faith, Frank Pomeroy has found forgiveness for the gunman. Put yourself this morning in his place of Frank Pomeroy. Could you forgive the man who shot and killed your daughter and 25 other members of your church? Could you do that? Especially if you know that story, that man that, that who committed all those murders, shot and killed himself, and so there was no evidence that he was remorseful, there was no evidence that, that he wanted to be forgiven, that, that he, he expressed any sign of repentance. Could you forgive that man like Frank Pomeroy has expressed that he has? It reminds me of what Jesus said when He was being crucified. He's going through that excruciating pain. His, his hands are pierced with those spikes. He's raised up on the cross. And what does He say, Luke 23, 34? Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Who's the subject that He is addressing there? He's looking down, no doubt, on those Roman soldiers, those Roman soldiers who just have those attitudes of stone. They've done so many of these executions that they're, they're callous to it. They're more interested in, in throwing dice to divide up his, his remaining articles of clothing than they are in the suffering this man is going through. Could you forgive them for crucifying you like that? He's looking down, no doubt, at at least some of the Jewish leaders who are gathered there, the Jewish leaders who have maliciously schemed and manipulated to destroy, to eliminate him. Could you forgive them? And he wants God, he prays, he wants God to forgive them? I I, I mean, how can we forgive someone? when on their part we don't see any expression of remorse, any expression of repentance, how can we forgive somebody who's not even asking to be forgiven, who is not taking even any responsibility for how they've hurt us, how they've sinned against us? This is an important question. This is where forgiveness begins or ends and doesn't happen at all. This is where it is so easy for you and me to get stuck when somebody who has done something to us that has offended us, that has hurt us, that has otherwise sinned against us, and they don't recognize it, and they're not asking for us to forgive them, and there's no expression of repentance. This is where we have to look at forgiveness as a bigger picture. If we think of forgiveness as that momentary transaction we make in our, in our heads intellectually or even that momentary feeling that we get to in those words that we express, that little narrow concept of forgiveness does not fit these situations. This is where we need to see, as I think the Bible makes it clear, that forgiveness is a process. Forgiveness is a road that we walk And I've I've, I've tried to diagram it a little bit. I I realize you may have a limited ability to see this up on the screen. Maybe this is something we can make available on the website. But if you can conceive of forgiveness as a continuum, and all of us in the relationships where we've been hurt or offended or sinned against are somewhere along this line. But at the two poles of the continuum, you you see the, the two polar opposites. You see on the left end You see, the situation where there is no recognition of the wrongdoer, the person who has hurt us, who has wronged us. They are not acknowledging that in any way. There is no evidence of repentance. We don't see any evidence that they are attempting to change in what they do. There is not even a request being made for forgiveness. That's Jesus hanging on the cross, looking down on those who crucified Him. That's Frank Pomeroy with, with no opportunity to see the heart of the man who shot and killed all those people. That's you and me in many of the situations that we are in. On the other end of this continuum is is really what full forgiveness looks like. That's where there is recognition of wrongdoing. The person who has sinned or hurt us has admitted fully to that and taken responsibility for that. There is evidence of repentance. We see not only in their words, but we see in the steps and the actions that they are taking efforts to change by the power of the Holy Spirit. There is forgiveness that's actually requested, not I'm sorry if, if I offended you in some way, but will you forgive me? And there is the extension in response of forgiveness meeting that request. All of us are somewhere along this continuum, and various experts, various biblical scholars, much smarter than I am, have they have they have described this process with a variety of terms. Let me just briefly touch on them: unilateral forgiveness on the left end, to mutual forgiveness on the right end; dispositional forgiveness to transactional forgiveness; an attitude of forgiveness to granting forgiveness; half-circle forgiveness to full circle forgiveness. Let me… let me dig into these just a little bit more. David Augsburger is the one who probably first used this phrase unilateral, one-sided forgiveness. That is you and your hurt and your offense and you being sinned against with no recognition on the other side that any offense has been committed, any hurt has been done. That is the steps that you make in your heart. And David Augsburger probably rightly says, really, this is not properly labeled forgiveness. This is really more a willingness to forgive. And I I can embrace that term. A willingness to forgive may be used by God to create the environment in which the Holy Spirit does that work over time in which finally there is repentance and there is the desire to… to reconcile, and you have mutual two-sided forgiveness that occurs. Alfred Poyer calls… calls this left side of the… of the continuum dispositional forgiveness, and really he's talking about what, what… what… does it look like in your heart? What's the disposition of your heart when you are in that place where you have been offended and you have been hurt, and that person does not acknowledge it? That person does not take any responsibility for it. He says having that disposition is having that inner readiness to forgive. Yeah, they're not asking for it now. They're not admitting or taking any responsibility, but you stand ready whenever God works in their heart, as long as that takes to extend that. You resolve to love even if they are acting in very unlovable ways. You choose not to dwell, not to perseverate on the offense and not hold it against them. You choose not to gossip to others about that person. All of that is is having that disposition, that inner readiness to forgive. Dispositional forgiveness ultimately is intended to lead to transactional forgiveness. There is that transaction They are convicted by the Holy Spirit, moved to the place where they confess to you. They take responsibility. Maybe you see parts that you need to confess and take responsibility for. And forgiveness is requested and extended, and reconciliation can begin. Ken Sandy calls this, this left side of the the continuum, having an attitude of forgiveness. And that, that, again, that's another term that works well for me because it's not full-orbed forgiveness, but it is having an attitude of forgiveness. It's by God's grace seeking to maintain a loving and merciful attitude towards the person who has offended us. It's committing that we will not dwell on the hurtful incident in our heart. We will not seek vengeance or retribution in thought, word, or action. It's committing to pray instead for that other person and standing ready, keeping the door open so whenever God moves and brings about that change in in their heart and maybe even in your heart, you are ready to have that transaction. You are ready to have that encounter where forgiveness is requested and granted. David Prince uses an illustration of a circle, and maybe this helps us understand forgiveness as well. Full forgiveness is the full circle. Full circle forgiveness is a picture where sin is confessed and repentance is offered and forgiveness is granted. But if the person who has offended, who has sinned, is, is not taking responsibility, is not repenting, is not requesting forgiveness, they cut off that circle. It's only a half circle. Half circle forgiveness describes how we as followers of Jesus, we seek to respond to someone who does not recognize that they have hurt us or wronged us. We can't control their behavior. We can't change the way they think about what happened or the way they process the offense. We can, however, as part of our half of the circle, we can control what we're going to think about. We can control how we're going to process it biblically. We can control how we're going to speak and how we're going to act. And half-circle forgiveness ultimately is intended to lead to full-circle forgiveness. Back to Luke 23, 34, Jesus models all these for us. Jesus models for us unilateral, one-sided forgiveness, that willingness to forgive hanging there on the cross. Jesus models having that inner disposition to forgive. Jesus models having that attitude of forgiveness. Jesus models half-circle forgiveness. I mean, think about it. Those crucifying Jesus, they had no sorrow over what they were doing. In the case of the Jewish authorities, they were probably gleeful that they'd finally eliminated this pest. They were not repentant. They were not asking for forgiveness. But Jesus recognizes, as He says in Luke 23, 34. They knew not what they do. They knew they were crucifying Him, but they didn't understand the spiritual significance of that. They had not yet been convicted by the Holy Spirit to see that they weren't just crucifying, they weren't just executing a political rival. They were killing, they were rejecting the Lord of glory, the one who was sent to be their Savior, their Messiah. And notice what Jesus does. He does not grant them forgiveness here, does He? Take His words very literally here. We're often erroneously taught that, oh, this is a broad extension of forgiveness. What is it that He does? He prays that God would bring them to the place where they would know full-circle forgiveness, that they would know that through the conviction of their sins, and that would bring about genuine remorse and repentance that prayer, by the way, was at least partially answered. God answered that prayer. We see in Acts chapter 2 a short time later in Jerusalem at the feet of, Feast of Pentecost, Peter the apostle, now filled with the Holy Spirit, is preaching. A crowd of thousands gather. That crowd had to include some of those Roman soldiers who were part of the crucifixion. It had to include some of those Jewish authorities. And you can read in Acts chapter 2 the whole sermon yourself, but let me just Go to the end of the sermon in verse 36. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And what happens when that sermon is finished, when the people heard this, these people who included those who crucified him, those who engineered and manipulated his crucifixion, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted by the Holy Spirit of the significance of what it was that they actually did. It finally dawned on them. It was like the shades coming up off of their spiritual eyes. They had rejected the Savior. They had crucified the Lord of glory. And that conviction leads them to really a horror, a remorse. And out of that remorse, they ask Peter, and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? In other words, how should we repent? What do we do that we have committed such a great a sin? How do we repent? To which Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And the scripture records that thousands of them responded in repentance that day. This moves us to, to, to ask, what does this look like when the Holy Spirit moves? Maybe what we see right now in the person who is not acknowledging how they've hurt us, how they've sinned against us, is that lack of the Holy Spirit opening their eyes. What would it look like if the Holy Spirit opened their eyes and maybe even opened our eyes in the process? Now, let me say before I, I go on, there, there are counterfeits. There are counterfeits. There are ways that we think we take these steps of one-sided forgiveness, of unilateral forgiveness, of having an attitude of forgiveness that are not really that. There is the counterfeit of tolerating. Tolerating is not forgiving. Tolerating, We tolerate uh, what someone has done when we simply try to ignore it. And there are things, minor things, that happen to us that that really truthfully can be ignored. The Bible says there are offenses that happen to us that are so small in love we can overlook them. But when an offense keeps bothering us, when the wrong done against you continues to eat at you, stuffing it down, trying to ignore it, tolerating it, is not forgiveness. It is not moving towards this kind of road to forgiveness that is described here. Excusing is not forgiving. We excuse people when we don't hold them accountable for their hurtful actions. And that may be appropriate in some cases. That may be appropriate in, in the case of somebody suffering from dementia who lashes out not knowing what they're doing. That may be appropriate in the case of your young child who is so young they don't realize that he or she does not realize when he lashes out against you that he's hurting you. But in the case of responsible adults, excusing is not forgiving. Excusing is not having the person take responsibility and process through what has happened in a biblical way. Thirdly, forgetting is not forgiving. And I, I think this one is so universally… this so universally happens, this counterfeit, we don't even recognize it anymore. Let's say you realize you have offended somebody, and you come to them, and you… and you make an apology, you make a confession, and you get this response. How often have you gotten this response? Oh, just forget about it. Forgetting is not forgiving. The reality is, when something happens that hurts us, when something happens that offends us, when we've been sinned against, we don't forget about it. And even when we truly forgive somebody… It's not like suddenly we develop amnesia. It's not like we have electroshock therapy that that removes the memory of that hurtful offense from our brain. But we can commit to changing the meaning of that memory. Through the grace of full circle forgiveness, we can reframe how we think about it Rather than just thinking about that offense and the hurt it caused us, we now can think about the ways in which confession has been asked for, in the ways in which we've granted forgiveness, in the ways in which we are now rebuilding trust, in the ways in which we are now strengthening the relationship and have an even stronger relationship as a result of it. We can reframe the memory so it is no longer a painful memory. It is actually a strengthening, God-glorifying, gospel-filled memory. Memory. One more, forgiving is not the same as reconciling. Now, we're going to speak a lot about reconciliation in future weeks, but what I need to say this morning is forgiveness is a necessary condition of reconciliation, but forgiveness does not automatically mean we've moved to reconciliation reconciliation has the ultimate goal of uh, it's the ultimate goal of the forgiveness process it's it's it but it requires some things it requires as you see up on the slide there that there is recognition of wrongdoing on the part of the person who's offended us it requires that there is evidence of repentance we see that the person truly wants to change from their hurtful behavior it requires that they have requested forgiveness and that we have granted forgiveness and return. And when those conditions are met, when that occurs, you, you, you… reconciliation is possible. You regain each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. You both are now at the place where you can commit to restoring the trust that has been broken between you. You both are at the place where you can begin to start risking again, to take the risks that are necessary to rebuild the relationship. Where are you this morning? I mean, what… what… what conflicted relationships come to your mind? Maybe… maybe if you're married, they're in marriage. Maybe they're in your family. Maybe with parents or with… with children or extended relatives. Maybe they're with friends. Maybe they're in your employment relationship. Maybe they're in your church relationships. What conflicted relationships come to you this morning, and, and where are you stuck? Where are you stuck when that person who has harmed you, who has hurt you, who has offended you, is not taking responsibility for that? Where does forgiveness begin? That is really the title of my sermon this morning. And while there's many places I think that we could start, I think Jesus in Mark 11:25 25 really hits the nail on the head. Jesus says, when you stand praying, and let me stop right there, what is he describing? This. He is describing when we come to worship, and in the midst of worship, as we stand praying, we recognize, as he goes on to say, that we are holding something against someone. The Holy Spirit convicting us in the middle of worship, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven will forgive you your sins. Where does forgiveness begin? Unilateral, dispositional, attitudinal, half-circle forgiveness begins not out of our relationship with the person who has hurt us, who has offended us, who has sinned against us. It begins out of our relationship with God our Father in heaven who has saved us. I want you to hear this clearly. This kind of forgiveness begins by remembering how we have offended, how we have wronged, how we have sinned against the Lord of glory, and and yet how He has loved us, how He has pursued us, how He has in Christ forgiven us forgiveness begins by asking ourselves, what should my attitude be towards this person, this unrepentant, this this person who's not taking any responsibility for how they have sinned against me, hurt me, or offended me? What should my attitude be towards this person in light of what God's attitude is towards me? Notice the word forgive there. This is crucial. The 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 word there, that Greek word that is is used in the translations here, that Greek word for forgive, it literally means, as it's used elsewhere, it means to release, release the other person. Forgiveness begins with releasing what we're holding on to in regards to that other person. Forgiveness begins with releasing what prevents us from having that attitude of forgiveness, that disposition of forgiveness, that readiness to forgive. When you think about the conflicted relationships that God brings to your mind, what are you holding on to that you need to release? The Apostle Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ offer us a number of things to examine ourselves by. Romans 12, 17 do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not take revenge. Forgiveness begins with releasing our desire for retribution to be repaid. They hurt me. They sinned against me. They need to pay. They need to pay. They have taken something from me. They have robbed me of something, whether it's tangible or it's emotional or spiritual. They need to pay. They need to make repayment. Forgiveness begins with releasing that. Forgiveness begins with releasing our desire for revenge, for vengeance. They hurt me. I want to see them… I want to see them punished. I want to see them judged. I want to see hard things come against them as a result of that judgment. Forgiveness begins with releasing that desire for vengeance that desire for revenge, knowing that it is the Lord ultimately, as Paul goes on to say in Romans 12 here, it is the Lord who for an unrepentant person to the end will guarantee that there is true vengeance, that there is true justice. Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Now, maybe you think, you know, the, the, the person who, who I, 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 I have all this, that, that I'm feeling all this about, you know, I, I would never curse them. I would never use profanity against them. It goes deeper than that. Cursing is when we desire that bad things would happen to that person. Cursing is when we desire that that person would suffer as a result of how they've caused suffering to us. It is that concept of of, of even as we think about in other pagan religions of casting a curse upon that person, asking that suffering would be inflicted upon them by the gods as a result of what they have done. Forgiveness begins with releasing our desire to curse that person. It begins with releasing our desire that that person would suffer, that that person would go through hard circumstances, releasing all that, giving all that up. Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with everyone and holiness, and and matched with that. Romans 12, 18 is, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Forgiveness begins with releasing our hard feelings that are holding us back from pursuing peace with that person. And yes, they may prevent us from pursuing peace. They may throw up a roadblock. They may build walls around us that make it impossible but as Romans tells us, we can pursue peace as far as it depends upon us. We don't have full control over it, but we can pursue peace as far as we have the opportunity to do so if we release our desire to hold back and put it all on them. Jesus says in Luke 6, 27, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who mistreat you, Forgiveness begins by releasing our resentment, by releasing our wounded pride, by releasing, yes, even our hatred, even though we would not admit that to other people, that we have hatred in our hearts. Releasing all of that and resolving to actively love that person, that unrepentant person, resolving to do good to that person whenever there is an opportunity that is presented to us resolving to pray for that person who does not even acknowledge how they've hurt us, how they've sinned against us. Paul Tripp, a pastoral counselor, puts it this way, forgiveness is a vertical commitment that is followed by a horizontal transaction. That vertical commitment begins back when we are dealing with someone who does not even acknowledge they've hurt us. It is is what we do between us and the Lord, that commitment that we make That ultimately, we pray, will lead to that horizontal transaction where we get right with that other person. He says, Forgiveness begins by giving your offense to the Lord. That does not mean denying or excusing the offense, it does mean that you do not carry the wrong with you. That's bitterness. And that you do not treat the other in light of the wrong. That's judgment. You entrust yourself to God's mercy and justice and you give yourself to overcoming evil with good. You commit yourself, you commit to responding to the one who wronged you with the same grace that you have been given. You do not insert yourself into God's position and mete out punishment for his or her offenses. A vertical commitment. That vertical commitment, as we make it, it gives us the right attitude towards that other person. That, what is the right attitude? Grace. As, as Paul says in Colossians, Colossians 3.13, forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Give grace as the Lord has given grace to you. And I need to say at this point, if you have not experienced the grace and mercy of God that is poured out, that is offered to you through Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross. If you are simply here this morning as a churchgoer, as a moral person, as a good person in your own mind, as a righteous person, and you have not encountered Jesus Christ in His saving mercy and grace, you can't forgive because this is not natural to us. This kind of vertical commitment begins with making that commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, His Savior and Lord, and allowing Him to cleanse us of our sins. It is that perspective, it is getting the gospel like that, that gives us even the mindset, the perspective to begin to forgive someone else. That vertical commitment not only gives us the right attitude, it gives us the right goal. What's the goal? What's the ultimate goal in forgiveness? It's this, it's reconciliation. Jesus says, first go and be reconciled to your brother. That's his ultimate heart, is, is not that just that transaction of forgiveness would take place and you feel good, but you you never have a relationship again. It is that you are reconciled as brother and brother, brother and sister, sister and sister. You are reconciled in the body of Christ. This is always the goal, the full goal of full circle forgiveness. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, this always has to be our goal as followers of Jesus Christ. Let me close with telling you about one of my heroes of forgiveness. Cindy and I have a longtime friend. Her name is Gloria. Gloria, after 35 years of marriage, her husband, a pastor, left his church and told her he was leaving her and that he was going to go find happiness however he defined that, with the rest of his life. He left her financially destitute. He left her in a state where they were ministering, but she didn't have any family, and she really didn't have any friends because they hadn't been there more than a year. He left her dumping all the blame for his unhappiness in marriage upon her, and he went off to pursue whatever he thought would make him happy. And to this day, he is still off trying to find what makes him happy. Many women in Gloria's position would easily become bitter, and we would understand that. Many people in Gloria's position would find the best lawyer you could find and get everything exact, every bit of vengeance and justice and repayment that could be exacted. And I judge no one who has made different decisions in hard situations like that. I simply focus on Gloria's heart, Gloria has maintained that, that attitude of forgiveness. Gloria has continued to pray for her husband, continued to wait for her husband. He has now divorced her, and yet she holds open the possibility. She, she doesn't excuse his sin. She puts out there that there would be repentance involved if he is going to come back to her, but she holds out that attitude of forgiveness. We don't know if in this life that will ever be answered, that will ever be fulfilled. But that's what unilateral forgiveness, that's what an attitude of forgiveness, that is what having that disposition of forgiveness looks like. That's what it looks like to begin to walk that road of forgiveness. And you know what? Even if Gloria and her husband never come back together and that circle is never completed, Gloria is free. Gloria is free of bitterness. Gloria is free of being held captive. Gloria is set free by that forgiveness which she's first found in the Lord Jesus Christ. What about you this morning? I realize this is a somewhat of a hard sermon for Mother's Day. Maybe some of you, as you think about your relationship with your mother or your father, may, maybe there is a need to take those steps of forgiveness, to develop an attitude of forgiveness Toward your mother or your father, or towards your children or your extended family. Maybe that's in a friendship. Maybe that's here in the church body. Maybe that's in a work relationship. What does it mean this morning for you as a follower of Jesus Christ to make that vertical commitment, have that attitude of forgiveness, have that disposition, that willingness to forgive? to trust in the Lord, to wait upon Him, to do His convicting work, to bring about in His timing full circle forgiveness. There will be people up here at the end of the service to pray with you. Maybe you want to come and you want to seek prayer for a situation of forgiveness that you are struggling with. Maybe you want to seek prayer because you don't know this mercy and this grace that we speak of that enables you even to begin to forgive. I'd encourage you to take advantage of those who would be up here to pray this morning. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Father, you are so worthy, and we are so needy, and we come as beggars, Lord. You know the valleys, you know the chasms, you know the canyons of relational separation and distance that have opened up in our lives. You know the hurt it causes us. You know every tear of the offense that we have felt. And Lord, yet you enable us by the way you have forgiven us to build bridges, to be peacemakers, to pursue reconciliation. Lord, we need in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, Lord, we need in this church a movement of forgiveness Lord, we need a culture of peacemaking. We ask that Your Spirit would do the work in each of our hearts. Use Your Word by Your Spirit as a sharp two-edged sword to press in to wherever each of us need to be touched and changed and healed. We pray that You do this work, Lord, that Jesus would be lifted up and glorified, and we would be changed. Amen.